Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. And so I've decided to be high-tech. What that means is I forgot my watch. <laughs> but I have my phone. And I'm putting the clock on now. The screen just went blank. No this could take a while. Your phone just went blank too, Morris. No, no, it went blank. No, trust me, it's blank. No, 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 no. It's blank in the spirit. <laughs> but you give me the high sign, all right. I would like for us to think a little bit this morning about the Apostle Peter, and the reason for that lies in my intention that we look at the first epistle of Peter for some time, however long it takes to work through uh, that letter. It's a very important letter about Christian life living as exiles in the world, um, that we are aliens, that this world is not our home, we're just passing through, and that God has scattered us abroad as His people throughout the world. And, and First Peter is about that. But before we got to uh, the letter itself, I wanted for us to just spend a little bit of time reminding us about who the author of this letter is, and that is the Apostle Peter. Now, looking at his life is beneficial uh, just on the surface of it because he's a right impressive fellow. Uh, his life is challenging, it's inspiring. Uh, there are many lessons to be learned uh, from the life of Peter. But in particular, I want for us to see in Peter that his journey of faith is just like ours. Now, I know most of us would say of all the apostles, I can identify with Peter uh, the easiest. Uh, John, the beloved disciple, really like that, but you know, I, I've never felt that much love for people. Uh, James, the leader of the church, who gave such strong leadership uh, in the early history of the church, I, we admire, but I'm not quite up to that. Andrew, who brought people to Jesus, well, I'd, I'd like to do that, but not so much. But Peter, I can identify. I can identify with Peter because he does uh, silly things, now, really silly things. For example, uh, he's in a boat, and he's rowing across the lake with his friends, and uh, they look across the water, and there's Jesus walking on the water coming to them. And uh, uh, Jesus says, calm down, guys. It's, it's just me. It is just I. And, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't be so afraid. And Peter says, well, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to jump out of this boat and come to you. And uh, Peter pretty much figured he had this figured out. There's no way anybody in their right mind would ask him to jump out of the boat and walk on the water. So Jesus says, fine, Peter, come walk across the water, come to me. And Peter, being the brilliant uh, physicist that he is, jumps out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. And as he's walking on the water to Jesus, you know, this is a pretty good thing until he looks around and realizes wait a minute, I'm walking on the water. I'm, I'm, I'm walking on glove, water, glove. <laughs> you know, and he begins to sink. When he takes a reality check, according to the world's estimation, it doesn't seem possible anymore. As long as he had his eyes focused on Jesus, as long as reality was defined by the words and the commandments of Jesus, Peter was fine. But then he listened to the world and the world's sort of... Um, 
analysis of things. And as a result, Peter decided now's the time to sink. He starts sinking, calls out to the Lord. Jesus picks him up, puts him in the boat. And that's a Peter that we can identify with. I mean, have you ever just gone overboard for Jesus? I mean, really gone sailing for Jesus? And then you realized it didn't make sense and then your friends started telling you you were nuts. And then the, the, the writers in the science column in the newspaper telling you that's not possible. And then everybody just joined together to say, this walking on water with Jesus, you are not only overboard, you're in over your head. And we started listening to that and we started sinking down in life. That's a Peter we can identify with. It's the kind of thing that happens to us. See, Peter's journey of faith uh, really started uh, when Jesus came and said, follow me. You remember the account, G Peter was uh, in, in his fishing boat, and uh, we surmise he may have had a fleet of boats. This was the family business. He was on uh, target to be a very successful businessman. If you had projected the, the, uh, the, the arc of his life, it would have gone from starting off well and ending off really, really well. Uh, it, it, his life consisted of get up in the morning, go down to the boats, set out into the water, bring the fish in, put the boats back in, sell the fish, make a lot of money, feel really good, get up the next day, do it, but retire early. I mean, that was Peter's life. That's what he was getting ready to do. And then Jesus comes to him, as he's in the middle of ordinary life and says, Peter, follow me. Now, I don't know if Peter had known Jesus before. He may have. He may have met Jesus before because in John chapter 1, we're told that uh, two of the disciples of John the Baptist were pointed to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And a couple of John's disciples got up and they, they went to Jesus. They started following him. Jesus said, well, what is it you want? And we want to know where you are. We'll come and see. But one of those disciples was Andrew, and Andrew was Peter's brother. And so Andrew ran back and got his brother and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, you know, Simon, glad to meet you. By the way, I'm going to call you Rock from now on. So Peter may have met Jesus sometime before. They may have had conversations. He may have had a chance to get to know something about uh, what Jesus was about and his ministry and so forth. So when Jesus comes to him and he's, he's in the boat and Jesus says, follow me, it's not like there's new data about Jesus being offered here. It's more like there's a, a crisis created. Because when Jesus says, follow me, Peter's got to make a decision. And how he makes that decision will not only determine what he does with his life, it'll determine who he is. And when Jesus says, follow me, Peter's got to decide, do I stay here in the security of my fishing boats and the family business where I know what's going on, I know how to, how, how to work the system, and I'm, I'm pretty competent here, and people respect me, and I know exactly what each day is going to be like. I can plan it out. I can actually have a calendar. And, and do I stay here with this kind of life, or do I get up and follow Jesus, and who knows where he's going? And Peter got up and followed Jesus. You see, whenever Jesus talks to you, he puts you in a crisis, sort of like right now. You didn't know that? That right now in this service, Jesus is saying, follow me. See, follow me is not just a one-and-done thing. Jesus comes, he says, follow me. You follow him a little bit, fine. You're, you're said Jesus goes off and picks on somebody else. And point of fact, when Jesus says, follow me, he comes to us every day, follow me. In every situation, follow me. In every relationship, follow me. In every venue of life, I want you to follow me. 
And this morning, you're hearing the voice of Christ, not my voice, but the voice as the Holy Spirit impresses it upon your heart and your mind that you need to follow Jesus. There's some area of your life, some, some relationship, something going on in your life, and you know you need to follow Christ, and this is a moment of crisis for you. It's crucial how you answer. You can say, well, uh, I've followed Jesus pretty much uh, my whole life. I'm, I think I'm in pretty good shape. I don't see any need for change. I, I think I'll just stay right here. And you go out of this room, out of this worship service, back into your life, pretty much the same as you've always been, doing, thinking what you've always done and thought, and going out, not a difference being made, and you'll just go out and continue spiraling down into the depths and the pits of life. Or you can get up out of the boat and go follow Christ. You know, the interesting thing about this is that uh, uh, Jesus begins this, this journey of faith for Peter by saying, follow me. And then at the very end of the Gospel of John, at the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to Peter, talks about feed my lambs, that kind of thing. But one of the things he says to John, he says, John, not John, to Peter, he says to Peter, when you were young, you decided what you wanted to wear and you went wherever you wanted to go. He says, but when you get old, at the end of your life, there will be people who will bind you, tell you what to wear, they'll tell you where to go, and they'll just stretch you out. And by this, Jesus was telling Peter the manner of death by which he would glorify the Father. That's what the Scripture says, glorify God. So at the very end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, what is Jesus still saying to Peter? Because at the end of that, he says, and follow me. John chapter 21. At the very end, Jesus still saying to Peter, follow me. Starts, follow me. Ends, follow me. Everything in the middle, follow me. And that's where we are this morning. Voice of Christ, follow me. And if you've ever wondered why you've been having a frustrating time of it in the religious uh, realm, if you've ever wondered why your, your spiritual uh, life and your discipling has not uh, sort of kicked into gear lately, examine this question. Has Jesus come to you and said, I want you to follow me? And you've said uh, in, in the most elaborate and elegant way you could, nah, not going to do it. So Peter starts out and, and, and he's put in this moment of crisis, will you follow me? Well, then, just a little bit later, Jesus says, uh, Peter, how about if we go to your house? Peter says, fine, so they go to Peter's house. There in Peter's house, uh, you, we find Peter's mother-in-law. And uh, by that, uh, we learn that Peter was married. He, again, just having a normal life of it as he's going along. But we also learn that he's taking care of his mother-in-law. And there we find biblical sanction for children taking care of their parents into their old age. Amen. There's only two people I want to have heard that today. <laughs> But Jesus goes into Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And Jesus heals her. And the word gets out. And the whole village brings everybody who's sick to Jesus. And Jesus heals them all. Now, here's the problem you've got if you're Peter. You can't hide anymore. You can't walk around the village anymore saying things like, well, my relationship with Jesus is a very private and personal thing, and I don't feel like I should inflict it upon other people. What are you talking about, Peter? You brought him in, he healed your mother-in-law, healed everybody in the village, everybody's talking about him, and now you want to have private religion? You know, suddenly he was thrust into the arena of witness. 
Suddenly he was called into uh, venues and places where, where, where he had to name the name of Jesus. And he became a witness of Christ just instantaneously. Well, on, on goes the story for a couple of months or, or so, and um, Peter watches the miracles. He listens to the teaching, sees the reaction of the people. He's talking with the other disciples, you know, having this interplay with Jesus all the time. And at one point, Jesus stops, and he turns to the, to the disciples and says, guys, i got to ask you a question. We've been at this for a little while. Who do people say that I am? Well, the disciples have a pretty good idea. They say, well, Jesus, some people think you're, you're Elijah, or some people think you're a prophet. And some folks even think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much what people are saying, things like that. And Jesus said, very, very interesting. Here's the question I really want to ask you, though. Who do you say that I am? You know, after all this time, after, after all the miracles, after all the teaching, after all the time spent together, who do you say that I am? And this is why we love P uh, Peter, because he sort of blurts out the answer. Uh, the Greek word is blutazo. Thank you for laughing, those of you who know I'm joking. <laughs> but he just sort of blurts out the answer. And uh, he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Okay? We've hit the home run. You know, it, it, this is the walk-off home run, right? Uh, who do you say that I am? Pow, you're Jesus. You're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Circle the bases. Celebrate. We've, we've, we've just arrived here at the very pinnacle of things. Peter now knows that Jesus is uh, the Christ. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you know you didn't figure that out on your own. You know, don't you, that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You're pretty much aware that this isn't some conclusion that you reach by, by some kind of analysis. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. My Father in heaven opened up your heart and your mind and changed your thinking. So, Peter, what you're having right now is a quantum leap of growth in faith. But it's not your doing, Peter. It's the work of the Father. See, there comes a moment when we've walked with Jesus for a while and we pretty much understand what he's doing. We've gone to the Bible studies and we've gotten the, um, uh, the data in front of us. And we asked him into our heart to be our Savior and, and, and all that's real and God honors that, that opening faith that he gives to us. But there comes a moment when you realize it's not just Jesus, Lord and Savior, let's sing a song and go home, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and he is the Son of God. Do you have any idea how significant it is to say that? That's right. <laughs> Nobody else would say amen. So Peter is brought to this, this sort of mind-boggling, opening, eye-opening conclusion. Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, 
and it's revealed to him by the Father. These are the moments of growth that come to us. You know, and don't you wish you'd just have one of those moments where, you know, it all clicked, it came together, I understand everything, it's really going fine, because then we would have arrived. What happens next? Jesus says, well, and you understand also that as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, I'm going to Jerusalem, there I'm going to be persecuted, I'll be tried, I'll be crucified, they're going to kill me, I'll rise again. Peter says, oh, no, 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 Jesus. In point of fact, that doesn't happen to the Messiah. Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You build me up, you cut me down. You know, I'm flying high, I've got this Jesus thing down finally, and then he confronts me with the fact that I'm still thinking on my own logic and in my own system of understanding. And he says, you know, no matter how far you get, no matter where you are, there's still more you've got to learn, and there's still more that you've got to realize. And it's my Father in heaven who will reveal it to you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to open up your mind to it. But, but Peter, that's what needs to go on. Otherwise, you're a hindrance there. Just a few days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on a mountain. And when they get up on the mountain... Jesus is transfigured. What that means is that the very glory of heaven descends upon Jesus. They see him in radiant brilliance. They see a whiteness in his robe that just causes them to almost be struck blind by the brilliance of the glory of God in Christ. And they are seeing Jesus displayed with all the majestic, sovereign power and glory that belongs to him from all eternity. Then they see with him Moses and Elijah. Moses who gave the law, Elijah who was the head of the chain of prophets, Moses who was the one through whom God guided the people with the regulation, the the display of his will and the law, Uh, Elijah who was the head of the line of the prophets through whom God brought a daily contemporary word to the people, thus saith the Lord. And so Jesus communing there with the law and the prophets, with Moses and Elijah, this is right impressive. And Peter says, wow. Jesus, how about if I put up a couple of tents? Well, let me slip back into my King James days. Jesus, would it be all right if I built three tabernacles? That sounds a lot more impressive, but it's actually three, three tents. He says, but let me build some tents here, and one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And you can see Jesus just saying, oh, come on. Three of us here, three tents. I didn't think it was for you, Peter and James and John. But, but Jesus, it'll be for you, and you, we'll, we'll all stay here. It's so good for us to be here. I mean, this is called a mountaintop experience. That's why we call them mountaintop experiences. You get up there, you see the glory of Jesus, you want to stay there. That's all you ever want to do. But the voice came from heaven. You remember this, don't you? The voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. I don't know what the voice of God sounded like at that moment, and I don't know if his voice cracked. But you can almost hear behind it, this is my beloved son that you're going to crucify. This is my beloved son who has come to earth to give his life a ransom for many. This is my beloved son who will hang on the cross and cry out to me, why have you forsaken me? And the pain and the agony and that we hear in the cry of dereliction, I think is all, it's already known. It's known to Christ. It's known to the Father. 
But he says, this is my beloved son. Then you remember what he said? Listen to him. Peter, this isn't about your feelings. Peter, this is, this is not about the fact that you're having a great time on the mountaintop. Peter, this isn't about the fact that, that things are really clicking and you're having a, a, a real worship experience going on here. Peter, this is still about Jesus. And so, Peter, you quit being concentrated on your experience and feelings and you start listening to Jesus. This, by the way, is why it is, I'll say misguided, but it's actually wrong, but I'm going to soften it. It is misguided to say things like, first we have worship time and then we have teaching time. You ever hear that? I hear it sometimes. You've heard it now. You know, but the idea is, well, first we get together and we sing and we praise and we have songs and we, and we worship God. We have a worship time and then we sit down and we have teaching time. You know. It's all worship. It's all worship. And I'm not saying that the voice of God, it, it, you know, is limited to what's said from the pulpit, but what I'm telling you that we believe that wherever two or three of us gather together, there Christ is in the midst of us. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the body of Christ, upon the church. We believe that Father, Son, Holy Spirit is present in this place, and we just believe enough in the power of God that when human words and the words of a man are launched forth in the air, God causes his word to land in the heart. And so we worship by listening to him, by hearing him. And so there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter learned that lesson. Yeah, you follow him, you make that opening decision for Christ, but then you, you realize who he really is, he's the Messiah. But then you realize worship is about obedience as well, about about experiencing the very sovereign power, will of God in Christ Jesus. So that, that's what's going on with Peter. Kind of an ordinary thing. Um, let me just give you one other incident because, the, the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're skipping over here. You, you, you do know that. And we're not even going to talk about what happens to Peter in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, the, the day of Pentecost, receiving the Spirit, preaching, proclaiming Christ in the city, encountering the opposition of the religious leaders, being put in prison, being released from prison, uh, learning about the, the, the grace of God that's extended beyond Israel with the incident with Cornelius and all that. So th there's a lot more that's going on with Peter, but I just want us to have one more incident in mind, and that's the one that we read about a moment ago, where Jesus says, Simon, Satan has asked that he could have you. But I've prayed for you, and, you know, when it's over, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Peter says, oh, no, Lord. Thanks for praying for me, but, you know, you should have been praying for somebody else because I will be loyal. You know, pray for those other guys. They need it. But you know something, Jesus? I'm the one who's going to stand with you and stand by you. If they throw you in prison, I'm going with you. If they kill you, I'll die with you. Jesus, I'm loyal. You can count on me. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, come on. Before this day is over, you're going to deny me three times. Three times. And you know what happened. He did. Three times he was given the opportunity to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. And if I must die with him, that will be my honor. Three times he was given the privilege to say, yes, Jesus is my very best friend. And I can't imagine 
letting him go through this alone. I'll walk with him. Three times he was given the opportunity not just to talk about his loyalty, but to live out loyalty to Jesus. And three times he said, I don't know the guy. Never heard of him. Oh, come on. Now, here's how we know Peter loved Jesus. The third time he betrayed Christ, he went out and he wept bitterly. He was devastated. And when the women came to the empty tomb, this is in Mark 16, and they saw the angel. He's not here, he's risen. And the angel says, go tell his disciples he's alive. And Peter. Specific, and Peter. It's almost as if the angels knew. Look, we know what Peter's going through. This guy's devastated. He's absolutely crushed by the weight of his own um, betrayal of Christ. But you go tell him that Jesus is risen. And, 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 and then we, we find out that Peter's there. He's, he's with the other disciples. By the way, when you're crushed and absolutely devastated, surround yourself with the people of God because they're the ones who are going to give you the word of God of comfort and, and the word of God of hope. And that's where he discovered it. He's in the upper room, locked in the upper room with the, with the other disciples, and, and the word comes to them. He's risen, and his life has changed. But before we leave that passage, I want first to look to one other thing. And your Bible is open to Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, in the Greek language, the word you uh, can be either plural or singular. There's two different forms of the word you, sort of like the archaic uh, King James. Uh, and this word is plural. Said Simon, Satan has asked that he can have all of you. He wants, all, he wants the whole crowd of you. Satan has asked that he might sift you, all of you. That word for sifting, it, it means to shake real hard, to, to really agitate somebody. It, it's to, I was going to say put them through the ringer, uh, but only people at the first service actually knew what a ringer was. Uh, <laughs> let me explain that to you. Uh, back in the olden days when... I was going to say, but I'm not. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit stops you from saying things that you're going to pay for the rest of the day, and uh, he, he just did. But anyway, back in the olden days, when you washed clothes, uh, you didn't just throw them in the washing machine and, and turn it on, and it spins, and then it, uh, you know, washes and agitates, and then spins again and spins the water out. Uh, what, what would happen is you'd throw the, the clothes in a tub, on a little stand, in, in a tub, and there'd be a little agitator there that would, that would just sort of shake them back and forth. This was high-tech stuff. And, and, and when, when it was done, then you would take the clothes absolutely sopping wet out of this tub. But attached to the top of the tub was, was a little bracket and it had two rollers in it on top of each other that were held together by a spring. And you take this soaking wet clothes and you put them in between the rollers, just get them started, and you turn the crank, because after all, this is high tech, and you turn the crank and it would suck these, the, roll these, these uh, uh, clothes through these rollers, and as they went through, they would squeeze all the water out. And so instead of having to wring the clothes out yourself, you had a mechanical wringer. 
and you did not want to get your fingers stuck in it because it was, you know, fingers connected to the wrist, to the elbow, to the shoulder. And uh, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to have you because he wants to put you through the ringer. He wants to crush you and just take the life out of you. That's what he wants to do. You see, Satan, Satan is very much interested in denying God the glory he deserves. Satan doesn't care about you. He just doesn't. The only thing he wants out of you is that you do not give glory to the Father. That's, that's really all he wants. And if Satan can do that by making you fat and happy, I've got one of those, but not two. I'm happy. What were you thinking? <laughs> oh, shame on you. But if Satan can deny God the glory, if he can get you to stop glorifying the Father by making you so fat and happy that you're satisfied with yourself and you never give God any glory at all, that pleases Satan. If he can make you stop glorifying the Father by making you poor and miserable, he'll do that. To make you just bitter enough that you never give glory to the Father. Satan doesn't care. He just doesn't care if you're happy, sad, rich, poor. All he cares is that you stop giving glory to the Father, and he'll do anything to get you to stop. The other side of it is Jesus cares for you deeply and personally. Here's where it is in the text. Look at the text again. Peter, Satan has asked to have you plural, all of you, just sort of as a group plan, that he can sift you and, 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 and deny you uh, glorifying the Father. That, that's, what, uh, uh, that's what Satan wants to do as a group. He really doesn't care about you. But then look at this next line. It's verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. That word you is singular, singular. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Peter, Satan is after you, but he doesn't care about you. You're just a nameless face. But I have prayed for you by name. I think that would be enough, don't you think? I mean, there's some great prayer warriors. I've known people that I want them praying for me. I know God answers all prayers and all that, but there are some people that when they pray, God answers in a way that you can see and it is overt and it's undeniable. There are some folks that when they pray, things just start to happen. God has given them a gift of prayer that would inspire the rest of us to pray. So there are some people I want praying for me all the time. But folks, there's nothing better than to know and to hear Jesus say to us, I have prayed for you. Here's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. He says, Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. And so Peter experienced that, that moment. And essentially what Jesus says to Peter is, look, the Christian life is not about um, all fun and games. You're going to have trial, tribulation, heartache, and setback. Jesus said to him, he said, look, 
uh, Satan has asked that he could have you, that he might sift you, put you through the ringer. If I'm Peter, at that moment I'm thinking, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. I thought being a Christian was about Bible camp. I thought being a Christian was about seed faith and showing your faith and God giving you more faith. I thought being a Christian was all about give a little, God gives a lot. I thought being a Christian was all about always having the answer, always having the resources, always having the, the, you know, the, 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 the quick comeback. I thought being a Christian was being connected to the power of God so it was nothing but blessing after blessing after blessing. I didn't know there was any suffering involved. Peter, Satan has asked that he might sift you. I don't know, there's probably some folks here this morning who are being sifted real hard. There's some folks here that you've been put through the ringer, but the ringer stopped and the pressure is just there and there and there. Jesus said, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And this is why when we do get to the first epistle of, uh, of Peter that um, we will understand where he's coming from when he talks about being an alien and a stranger in the land. We'll understand what Peter's talking about when he, when he talks about responding to life in a way unknown to the world but known to the people of God. This is why when we read the, the, the letter of 1 Peter, it will make sense to us when he talks about living a life that is so different that it makes us a peculiar people unto the Father. That's why we're looking at Peter. Now, let me give you just one big thought. I think it's a big thought. And we'll close with that. And it's just this. God is faithful. Simple thought, but it's a big thought. God is faithful. When you're in the boat, he says, come follow me. God's already taken care of the pathway. When he says, who do you say that I am? The Holy Spirit moves you to confess Christ. He's already prepared the way. When you come into the glory of God and you just want to bask there and he says, no, there's more to it. He's already supplied the resources. God is always faithful. He was faithful to Peter even when Peter was unfaithful to him. Isn't this odd? Not really, but isn't this odd that the life of faith turns out to be all about the faithfulness of God, not about the strength of our faith? You see the difference? The life of faith is not about whether or not we, we can conjure up within ourselves enough conviction and strength to convince ourselves about things we don't really think. And, 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 you know, it's not from within. The life of faith is from the Father who reveals the Son to us and gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. The life of faith is about the faithfulness of God. And that's where I want to close it. Now, this morning... I haven't said anything to you, but God has said something to you. And he's asked you to get out from where you are to begin walking the life of faith, trusting in the Father by the power of the Spirit. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?
Father, we just don't have the words. We don't have any way possible that we can tell you how much we love you and no words to describe what you mean to us. And so, Father, we're thankful that you put it in very simple terms that we can understand and apply. And so I pray for each one of us in this room, Father, that you would give us the grace to follow Jesus step by step, day by day. I ask this so that you, Father, would be glorified in the name of your Son, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.